Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. And I think when I did it, part of me thought, oh, that can be a different Gemma Carey. Um, and then I was in a meeting in Prime Minister and Cabinet and someone reached over and said, you're, you're just so brave. And, I, and that was the moment that hit me. That I was like, I don't get to be two different Gemmas. The name is not common enough. People are going to connect this. And um, I just have to, you know, find a way to sort of to, to live with my worlds colliding, which is, you know, I think it becomes easier. Those are the wise words of Gemma Carey. Associate Professor Gemma Carey is the Research Director of the Centre for Social Impact UNSW and an NHMRC Fellow. Gemma is currently writing her first memoir and has previously written a number of influential books that turn a spotlight on how we can get better connected government and NGO sector to get better policy outcomes. More recently, Gemma has focused her research and writing on the challenges and opportunities of the NDIS. Gemma writes on these issues and more for some of my favourite publications, including The Conversation, The Mandarin, Pro Bono Australia and more. Links to her work, as always, in our show notes. I first started following Gemma's work when I worked in the Victorian government as a policy advisor and thought she was one of the few very accessible young academics who were making some terrific points on how policies designed to help our most vulnerable were often not working as intended. Gemma has an outstanding Twitter presence and following her you'll get a reliable mix of big dog pictures, poignant insights on public policy and witty banter replete with hilarious memes. Before we get started, a quick shout out to our Patreon family including new member Carmen who says bloody love your work and feel like I can call you a friend although you do not know me yet. Go you good thing and thank you for helping so many to share thinking, best practice and dreams. Thank you very much Carmen for your support and very kind words. And thank you to Carmen Times 2, Misha Times 2, Jules, Levi, Sue, Tanvir, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will also for your kind support. This group helps me to shape the direction of the podcast through their ideas, advice, guest referrals, and ongoing feedback. I'd love you to be part of that. And if you want to do so to help support the growth and sustainability of Humans of Purpose, please hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. This podcast with Gemma was recorded over Zoom just last week. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gemma as much as I did. Great. So I am absolutely thrilled to be here with uh, Associate Professor Gemma Carey today. Um, We probably don't have enough time to go through all your amazing credentials, but you are the Research Director at the Centre for Social Impact. Uh, You hold a PhD in Social Policy and Population Health from the University of Melbourne and a Master's in Anthropology from the University of Adelaide. So before we get into your actual work, I just wanted to say I am a big fan of um, a lot of the work that you've done. I came across your work um, in go- when I was working in government about joined up government. Um, I think back then you had a, a strong Twitter presence and research presence and I followed your work uh, with great excitement over time and really keen to hear a bit about you and um, your journey into the space and your career to date. I like that you mentioned my Twitter presence before my research presence. It's goals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well what can i say i mean the worlds have become so uh, intertwined um as, as of late that i sort of feel it doesn't matter where you pick up but you know when you're doing research you're talking about it but you're also talking about things that you're thinking about that you might not be researching yet and i really like that too 
Um, so I would love, you know, can you take me through sort of um, a bit about your, you know, the start of your career, how you got into research, how you got into writing and um, sort of what, what you're up to a bit today? Yeah, sure. Um, I um, was kind of born into academia. I'm the child of two academic parents, so I don't think I really got to say in what I did for a career, to be frank. Um, but I, I am the black sheep of the family because I'm the only social scientist out of a family of roboticists and pure mathematicians and physicists. So at least I did something slightly different. Um, I always say that I am a really weird academic and I lead a team of weird academics at the Centre for Social Impact as well. Um, and the reason I say that is that we are very outwards looking, very applied, very um, like we're still doing those traditional academic metrics, um, but everything we do is about trying to make the world a bit of a better place. Um, and in the kind of environment we're in these days, that does mean, you know, having that sort of um, science communication type approach of even being on Twitter and, and working out and, and making sure that you talk in different spaces in different ways, um, which is something that uh, I think is probably increasingly important for my generation of academics, millennials coming through, um, and something that I train my staff in and focus on a lot is making sure that they know how to communicate really diverse audiences um, about their research. And is that sort of something that Twitter offers with the limited characters? It seems to be an interesting way where it's sort of like an honesty slash fidelity filter. You've got to be really concise about what you're saying and it's got to sort of be relevant and hit the right notes. Um, but also the thing that I think is interesting about your work is it's so interested as well with impact. So not just mm -hmm. the, the conventional conception of the researcher who slaves away, publishes in a few journals that only academics get to pull through and that's the end of the trail. I think you really get to the that continuum of design to implementation, which I think is quite fascinating. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is that the research that I primarily do is live implementation studies. So that means that you're doing the research and as it's happening, as things are changing, um, quite rapidly when you're thinking about things like the NDIS. Uh, and so you've got to find ways to be able to feed back into that process in real time. Well, I guess you could go a more traditional path and, you know, say something after five years at the end of it. But to be useful, you need to find ways to do that, um, which means, you know, really engaging across the whole of the policy network as well. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I think you did sort of just mention the NDIS there, and I know that that's a, a real area of focus um, for you in more recent times. How do you think the NDIS is going sort of with, the you know, it's like the last thing it probably needed was the COVID and global pandemic to test its uh, fidelity, but how do you think that's all playing out at the moment? Um, yeah, last thing everything needed was a global pandemic, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. I think, it, look, I think it was really unfortunate timing um, in that I think some things were just starting to be bedded down. We were also starting, and I say we, I mean researchers, but also people in government, were starting to get a handle on where some of the sticky points were um, just for this massive external shock to come in um, and disrupt all of that. Um, we also had to scramble very fast, both in research and government, when COVID happened because the NJS we realised um, is basically the perfect system to spread COVID. Um, you've got 
one person having 10 carers coming to their home, for example, each day, then going on to 10 other homes and doing really intimate tasks like bathing and feeding. Um, so there was had to be a lot of very rapid mobilisation about how we protect people within the NJS when COVID happened, which kind of, um, you know, I think on both sides of the fence led us to realise that no one had ever really thought about personalisation in the context of epidemics and pandemics before. So it's it's sort of quite interesting because it's sort of like you're imagining a system that's working perfectly and that, that's kind of the, the normalised conception of how a system would work. But then you add in, you know, one or two shocks and I think really um, COVID has exposed vulnerabilities within so many major um, social care systems, but um, NDIS seems to have been particularly vulnerable, aged care as well, um, mm. how we work with vulnerable youth. I suppose um, in a kind of sick way, it's, it's been quite interesting from a research perspective and I think we'll get maybe a lot of interesting data and insights um, from this period about building resilient systems? Yeah, I think um, where maybe the NJS is a little bit different from the other systems where you you can kind of see that the cracks were there before um, was that we were still in many ways very early in implementation. Like the markets that that the NJS relies on that people purchase services from were really just starting to find their feet a bit. Um, And so the kind of economic shock of COVID um, where you know, we're not in the field at the moment, um, but we're waiting and, and I know the peak bodies and government are all waiting to see what's left standing at the end uh, in terms of what providers are in there. Um, and so the the building back um, after this will probably be quite quite big, I would say, and challenging. But much of the work that you've done is sort of about um, how government joins up with the non-government sector or the, the NGO space. How do you think that's been kind of, we've had a year of just terrible shocks. I'm sure you're based in Canberra a bit, so you would have had some of the fires to to contend with and um, then straight into a pandemic. Um, What do we learn about how civil society organisations and government have worked together during this period? I think um, it was quite interesting. So I'm based in Canberra, so um, and um, my sister has a a house in one of um, the hardest hit areas down the south coast here with the fires she's very lucky to still have a house um so we were very much in the middle of that um so it's been it's been rolling apocalypses um here basically since december um and each one has brought different things to the fore in some ways and and there is consistency so what the fires showed us and actually the smoke in canberra showed us was that any existing inequities just get ramped up so quickly and we don't really have the systems to respond to them. Uh, what became clear, I think, in both of them, but um, I remember sitting in a in a meeting with some government officials around the smoke uh, and I was there accompanying some uni students who were getting masks out to people who were sleeping rough. Uh, and it was interesting. It was the first time I, I really smacked me in the face that strongly that, um, you know, these students were able to mobilise so quickly um, because our part of civil society, there was no bureaucracy, there was no red tape. They just got other people to bring them in, set up their own systems and went. Um, While you had actually governments and bureaucracy trying to catch up to that. Um, That was a great outcome from that in that the government actually supported the uni students to keep running this like parallel system that they had built. But it was a really interesting moment in seeing kind of rapid inequities emerge, capacity of government to respond um, constrained by their own um, bureaucracy, which is, you know, necessary part of government, but that's how it played out in the crisis. Um, And then, 
yeah, how those two were able to come together was really good um, in the end. But it was an interesting observation. I think the the commonality with what's happened with COVID is, again, um, all those inequities coming right to the front immediately. Like, okay, you've got people with mobility issues, people, um, you know, in these vulnerable care systems that within the context of a pandemic like the NJS that we hadn't quite thought about before. Um, and it becomes, a, you know, an immediate issue. And, you know, if you don't have people on the ground in those spaces who understand the day-to-day lived reality of that, translating what that means to people who are removed from that city and government, um, that can be really um, problematic and risky. So, again, in that space, I saw people um, come to the fore and just just try and explain the day-to-day lived reality of what the pandemic meant for somebody who um, had a complex disability. And then there's that question of, you know, how do we work through, how to adjust this um, and and fix it and respond to it, um, which is complex and I think slower than people would like. But, yes, it's been a very interesting time to um, live in Canberra and see that kind of, yeah, <laughs> how sectors come together and don't come together and help each other. Yeah, and I wonder kind of with, with the research brain that you've got, you must be thinking a lot about um, does this change the role of government here? Um, you know, what are the challenges to the traditional um, maybe stewardship role of government or uh, procurement role of government? Then do you also at this time, at a time like this look overseas and think that's a government that's doing things really well? We could learn a bit from that and all the sort of studies that you could be doing around um, what have been the most effective public health responses and how has it worked well and what do we learn? Yeah, I think um, at least 10,000 PhDs were born when COVID hit and that week that um, the Liberal government released all of their new Belfasto <laughs> policies. It was quite overwhelming as a researcher. Um, what was the start of your question again? Sorry? I'm not even sure if it was a question, to be honest. I, I guess I, I was sort of um, maybe just thinking a bit about the role of government and sort of, you know, maybe COVID has posed uh, yeah. um, a challenge to sort of traditional conception there. I think it's interesting. And again, like these are insights that you probably wouldn't get if you hadn't been in back to back quite different crises that required different kinds of responses. So a lot of the tension that we saw play out, um, you know, and down to kind of personal conversations with with friends here in Canberra during the smoke was that, you know, there was a complete absence of government response. I think for quite a while, we're all in agreement about that. Uh, And you saw this kind of tension of people sort of knowing that they needed to personally respond to either through doing things for their own networks and communities or through um, giving a lot of money to different charities like um, the Royal Fire Service, but also having this kind of internal conflict around, but that's actually the role of government. And if we as citizens step in too much, will that allow um, small government agenda type political parties to pull out more from that space as well? Um, so that was... That was the tension that was playing out and the conversations after the fires and then COVID hit and, and we've kind of done a bit of a flip of that in some ways and now we're seeing government step right into the crisis and, and into action. So I think in a lot of ways I, our heads are absolutely spinning and so many of our ideas about um, how policies get up, don't get up, um, how change happens quickly, slow uh, within governments have, have kind of been thrown out the window in the last um, few months. So I've had a few academics say, you know, I've, I've tried to sit down and, 
and write something about, you know, a broader piece on what, what's going on or the paradigm changes or and just being quite overwhelmed because any one policy change that's happened in response to COVID is not itself actually just very, very large um, and often unprecedented. And then you put them all back to back and it, it's quite extraordinary. Um, I was talking about this with um, Jeremiah Brown, who is in my research team um, and also on Twitter. And he was making a really good point that, you know, when this first hit, we were saying, you know, we stood back and we went, oh, my gosh, the coalition's building, rebuilding the welfare state in a week. What's going on? Um, but actually, when you kind of step back from the flurry of activity, um, Jerry was arguing, I think quite rightly, that um, the paradigm that this government is operating in hasn't changed. So most of the, um, you know, way that we're giving out welfare relief is through governments and it's through the markets and we're still making decisions that particular groups like people in the disability pension should be excluded from that. Um, so once we kind of are able to get away from the the flurry of extraordinary activity, perhaps, yeah, things haven't moved as radically as we, we might have first thought. Time will tell. Does it sort of open up the space for um, examples or does it highlight more displays of great leadership or lacks of leadership? Because I, I think I read somebody tweeted that, um, you know, if, um, now Scott Morrison will be remembered because of COVID. Uh, it, it's sort of giving him that opportunity to really stand up in a space where otherwise there might be a real sort of lack of leadership. So I wonder your thoughts on sort of how leadership is playing out in the government and, and the not-for-profit sector. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting um, because COVID is, a, you know, it's a shame and a terrible thing to happen on so many levels. Um, but for the communities in Australia that were hit by the fires and smoke affected, it's obscured some very, very poor leadership at all different levels of government that happened during that time that I think it's really important we learn from. So um, one of the things that's not kind of getting traction because of COVID that would, had that not happened, was the number of smoke-related deaths that have happened because of the fires. Uh, there was not enough done to protect citizens from the smoke inhalation. Um, as public health researchers, we were all just screaming that this was going to lead to avoidable deaths. Now those deaths are starting to happen. So we've had 160 additional deaths so far, um, but it's just a start and that's actually going to stretch on um, for 10 or 15 years. And I think that all of that will have been lost, um, both kind of accountability, learning from that, um, and also the public's awareness of that is probably swamped by COVID, um, which is is a shame because we will face fires again, you know, hopefully not next summer, but it will keep happening. Do, do you think, I mean, like a kind of perverse consequence or maybe a, a silver lining to all of this stuff that's happened, and I hate using the, the term silver lining in the context of tragedy and probably shouldn't do it, but um, people seem to be a lot more attuned to what government is doing and be a bit more engaged as opposed to apathetic re-policy and kind of a, the civic discourse. Um, I'm not sure whether people are speaking to each other enough and the neighbours and communities, but they do seem to be all clued into these constant barrage of press conferences and um, at least what's coming out of major government centres. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, I, and I remember having that thought in the bushfires, but I hadn't really thought it around COVID, but I think maybe I've run out of time to have any thoughts during COVID. Um, yes, certainly from December onwards, I think everyone was much, much more engaged um, in politics. And 
you know, I think there's also that challenge of, um, you know, we're such a forgetful populace. Like we get to an election and we forget so much um, the good and the bad sometimes. So, yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see how that um, civic engagement and political engagement plays out down the track. I want to talk a bit about the role of the modern or current day um, researcher or person who's producing impactful research. Um, you know, five to ten years ago, um, you just didn't see people doing as much as somebody like you does in different spaces, like advocacy armed to what you're doing as well, like through Power to Persuade, um, through what you've done through Twitter. Um, I think you are one of the more visible academics doing impact, impactful work, both previously and currently in the public health and governance space. So I just wonder, you know, is that something that you pick up from other people? Are you taught that that's what it takes to be an effective researcher today? Or is it just you sort of being you and that's how you um, are being your best researcher self? I think, um, to be honest, when I started, I don't think there was much of still much of an appetite um, for academics to engage outside of more formal settings. Um, I trained separately in science communication, uh, which is probably why I kind of took to it. Um, and probably I think a little bit before um, the bulk of academics, I think we are seeing people move more and more into it. It, is, it was certainly not part of my training, um, but I think it needs to be part of training. It's something that I make sure all of my students and staff feel comfortable doing um and that's it's about two things i don't think that you can have a successful research career anymore without that kind of engagement i think that there are increasingly expectations um, from universities from funding bodies um, and also the fact that we have to seek our funding from outside of government sources now that if you're not externally engaged you're probably not um going to have much job security frankly uh but then the other side is that you know, what's the point of what we're doing if it's, to me at least, if it's not about getting that information into the hands of people who can use it and make things better and make better choices. Um, but, yeah, I do get told quite frequently when I uh, engage with people in government that they, they find me quite odd for an academic. <laughs> <laughs> I think quite odd wouldn't be the way I'd put it. I, I'd call it... Um, <laughs> You kind of put your whole self out there, which I really enjoyed. Like I, I just, you know, by way of a bit of background, jumped on your Twitter this morning and um, I don't use it too often, but I just like, I like the, the combination of large dogs, uh, you know, a lot of jokes. Um, it, it's very accessible, um, a lot of the stuff that you're posting. And, um, you know, I've got my little puppy Cyril here next to me, who's a mainstay in, in most of the, the podcasts. Um, so how, how has it been having um, two big dogs with you? Is that sort of... Um, been a good thing you know lately and also with with a bunch of crises i'm sure it's been very um calming and help helpful it it has and i really think the best thing anyone can do for their career is to invest in bernie's mountain dogs um <laughs> it, it's been quite the boon i have to say they are far more famous and have far more friends than i do um one thing that because you said at the start that you were sort of you know interested in in that um leadership and authenticity type question. So I don't know if you have seen on Twitter or anything. So I also do a lot of kind of personal memoir writing um, for lit journals, uh, The Guardian, and I have a memoir coming out as well. And that is probably um, the point where I had to make a very conscious choice um, about how much of personal me was going to be exposed in the public domain and, um, 
and how integrated sort of professional and personal me was going to become. Um, and when I started that journey and I, I published a few things about my mother dying um, and my I lost a baby in the second trimester and things like that, and I published those things. And I think when I did it, part of me thought, oh, that can be a different Gemma Carey. Um, and then I was in a meeting in Prime Minister and Cabinet and someone reached over and said, you're, you're just so brave. And, I, and that was the moment that hit me. That I was like, I don't get to be two different Gemmas. The name is not common enough. People are going to connect this. And um, I just have to, you know, find a way to sort of to, to live with my worlds colliding, which is, you know, I think it becomes easier um, over time. That some people really, I think, appreciate the authenticity of that. Um, not everyone does. I think it's it's been confronting to some academics and older academics as well um so it's been a very it's been a very interesting journey and I think it will be get very very interesting when the memoir comes out in September um and any vestiges of separate lives will completely disintegrate at that point so <laughs> the we'll total integration comes. of Jim McKelly yeah. I hope that's yeah. the working <laughs> title <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, I must say, your, your bookshelf you've got behind you um, looks incredible. Um, I know you're a fan of uh, admiring other people's bookshelves and video calls as well. But what if you had to pick three of your most influential books uh, that have kind of speak to your influence, your career from behind you? What might they be? Ooh, on the spot, um, I think actually one of them is a recent, very recent book. It only came out last year. It's called Administrative Burden um, by Pam Hurd and Don Monahan. Sorry. And um, it's about the way that administrative structures are used and created uh, to create and maintain uh, inequities, essentially, by governments, which for me, why that's so influential, even though it only came out last year, is that it, it finally just labels something that I had been documenting and seeing in lots of different spaces, but had never put together quite so concisely um, as that. Um, so that was in the American context and we're actually um, now working uh, with Don to translate that into the Australian context as well, which is really exciting. You want three. I might have to, to look at them. It doesn't have to be a hard rule of three, but I just wondered if any stood out. It's a very on-the-spot request, but I couldn't help but admire the, um, the, the bookshelf itself is lovely, but also it looks like there's a lot of um, things that have influenced you there. Um, James Button's book, Speechless. Um, do you know that one? No, I don't know that one. So James Button's a journalist and he uh, took up a speech writing job for Kevin Rudd um, and he, he took that position up uh, exactly when I was doing interviews for my PhD in the Rudd government at the same time. Um, so we were both, and we've talked about this, we were both outsiders um, in, the, in the Rudd government. Um, and we both knew a lot of a lot of the stuff that later came out in the media that neither of us could talk about. Um, and I love James' book because I think it is an incredibly accurate, compassionate, and kind take on um, the truly difficult context that public servants work in. Um, that most people in the public service, if not all, are there for the right reasons, working very hard to do a very hard job, getting a lot of flack thrown at them, um, either from politicians or from the community. Uh, and in Speechless, James just provides this really great outsider look um, 
on the value of that work. And that sounds pretty also, fascinating. He, it's really good. And he also never got to write a speech for Kevin Rudd the whole time he was working there, <laughs> which is why it's called Speechless. So. <laughs> I, I kind of want to get into a, a moment that we had last year where somebody who was working very closely um, with Kevin Rudd told us all about what it was like to work with Kevin Rudd. And when you got on his bad side, you got these icy eyes and you, you were never going to have any anything put in. I think um, being an outsider in his inner circle um, would feel very awkward and that's certainly going to be on my uh, reading list. That sounds fascinating. Um, so t- talk to me a bit about um, writing books as well. And I mean, because you're doing a lot of different things and I, I think it's pretty fascinating to me. Do you draw a lot of... Um, I suppose, satisfact, personal satisfaction and also does it kind of fuel you and your, your research program to also be writing books at the same time? Um, I think that part of why I started doing memoir, um, and, I, and I do use a lot of my research in my memoir as well, nothing is ever separate, right? Um, that was around that I kind of got to a point um, with my career where I I had accelerated more rapidly than I ever, ever thought that I would, frankly. Um, and I'm completely incapable of ever being satisfied with anything that I do. So I launched off and, and developed a second career. Um, so now I have a book contract with Alan and Unwin, books coming out. Um, and yeah, I think it just takes, um, hmm, both of those things, I think at this point, um, to, I've lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're right. Um, I, I just, I, I really admire um, and I wonder kind of, you know, how much it's fueled you to be having that um, avenue of writing for yourself as well as, you know, running a separate research program and um, being... That's you know, what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, that I think, you know, you write, I've written a, a lot as an academic. I've published four academic books and, and 80 articles and there are very strict um, conventions in how you write in academia. And I think that I sort of hit a point of being just a bit tired and frustrated by those conventions. Um, And so being able to break out and tell, you know, stories about inequality or grief or different life difficulties um, through a personal lens and getting to break every rule of academic convention uh, has, I got to a point where I think I needed to do that to stop being frustrated. So it's really, really satisfying um, to have both at the same time. (laughs) I dare ask you what the next frontier is for you and whether you've got anything, uh, any other mountains that you, you hope to conquer soon. Obviously, the, the book release, the memoir, will be huge. Is there much else that you're thinking of doing? Um, so I'm, I'm writing a second book at the moment, um, which is a collection of essays rather than a memoir. Um, and and that's probably as far as, as I've got. I don't know if I'll add a third career yet. Maybe two will be enough. <laughs> Well, I was thinking a natural fit for you, um, given the communication background, would be a podcast. Um, but I'm wary of <laughs> promoting the idea. Don't, of don't, a don't see that idea. <laughs> um, I have, so I stepped back from Powder Suite a couple of years ago as its director. 
And I think if I'd stayed director, and I don't want to put pressure on Sue, who's the new director, um, I think we would be looking at a podcast to go alongside the blog at this point. And I'm also a little bit relieved that that's not my cross to carry anymore. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I just feel that with people like you, you have so much to say and it's I suppose it must be hard to figure out how best to communicate your ideas and books, research program, um, and how you're able to do it across Twitter as well and blog like and you know publish um, academic articles it must feel like a really nice mix where you do get to kind of um, you know cross styles a little bit um, give different parts of how you think uh, at different times and address different topics in different ways it is providing you're comfortable with being a whole person all of you on display um, all the time and I don't think that is for for everybody and I'd be lying if I said that there weren't times that I didn't find it incredibly awkward in professional settings um, where something <laughs> someone's read something I published somewhere else and it gets brought up um, but you know that's okay call it a, uh, a minor uh, dis- disadvantage to, to a lot of advantage in, in some ways. Um, Indeed. It's been an Indeed. awesome conversation. Uh, one thing I did pick up that maybe I thought we could um, touch on just before we close up is just the challenges, and this is maybe too big to, to touch on at the end, but I'm curious around that challenge with policy design and implementation, which you really have spent like a lot of time on um, in your career. And sort of with that gap, are things kind of, getting better or has much changed recently in how we address that kind of gap between uh, design and implementation? Uh, I think it depends on your concept of um, what that gap is. I think that if you subscribe to a fidelity model of implementation where you've designed a policy and then you're going to roll that out according to the design, uh, you will be forever disappointed by that. Um, I think it's a bit more about shifting people's expectation around implementation, um, that it will always be messy, convoluted uh, and interrupted. Um, And that's not necessarily problematic. And even if it is problematic, it probably doesn't matter because that's the reality of of what happens um, when you bring something into life in the real world. Uh, One thing that I... I say this often about the NJS, but I've seen it in every policy I think I've researched, um, is that our expectations around fidelity kind of lead people to call failure on a policy very quickly and far far too early. And when we do that, we can sometimes condemn the policy to failure. So, you know, I for the last few years I've had people say at almost every talk I give, is it time to just throw away the NJIS? Um, to which I always say, absolutely not. You know, it's revolutionary and revolutionary generation um, defining reforms are always going to take a lot of time to bring to life. When we start to say something's failed, I think people begin to disinvest in it, whether that's emotionally or financially, and then we can actually set the course of um, a policy that, um, you know, we we backed to begin with and should continue backing. It's just that we have to sit with the uncomfortable mess of implementation. So... It's a really good point I think you make there about when you call it and when do you evaluate whether something's worked. And I think we are so impatient as a society uh, with our expectations of things the government does and maybe other groups do on our behalf that um, if something isn't proven to be a success within the first few months or year or two years, then we are quick to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, yeah, we are. And the reality is that um, change is incremental almost always. 
um, maybe not when COVID hits and we redesign the welfare state, um, usually change is incremental. And that's quite frustrating, I think, to people outside of um, the implementation process who just go, right, the NDS got through, we want it in place now and, and we want it to look like that beautiful finished um, vision that was given to us without anyone ever clearly articulating that maybe that was a 15-year journey. My favourite, um, one of my favourite ways to understand change is thinking about um, how President Obama, uh, former President Obama, characterised that change process, like trying to turn around a steamliner. When you, it's very hard to see a steamliner turning around, but you, you see it over time, and that's sometimes what policy change looks like—that really slow um, turning journey. Yeah, it's a, as always from Obama, a very good metaphor for it. <laughs> Um, look, it's been wonderful chatting to you. I thought we might just end up by uh, me asking you um, if there are any people sort of listening in on this, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who would be fascinated um, by the research world and maybe joining that world or doing a PhD or getting more kind of having a career in research because of all the policy change and rapid change that we're seeing in society and government. Uh, would you have any advice or, or, or things to think about for those people? Uh just to do it. <laughs> I think, I think that, um, you know, the academy presents itself as a very elite and exclusionary um, institution and that can be intimidating to people and it shouldn't be. Um, There's a lot of bluster in that. I think anyone, you know, who wants to do a PhD who's passionate about it um, should give it a crack, really, and not be afraid to reach out to academics um, to ask them about how to begin that process or how to, you know, find ways in to research. Awesome. That's a terrific uh, piece of a piece, few pieces of advice. Uh, finally, how can people sort of connect with you and learn more about your work and maybe when, when your book's coming out and um, anything you want to share with by way of connection for the audience? Well, Twitter um, is one. Um, and... With research stuff, I mean, particularly where people are in the not-for-profit sector or in government, I always say to people, you know, just drop me an email um, as well. Like if there's a piece of research that um, we're doing that's useful to what you're doing, we're always happy to have a conversation about it um, informally or, you know, more formally if that if that's what people are after as well. So I always encourage people to just get in touch over email. Great. And so what is your Twitter and email for those people? So my Twitter is at Jem Carey, G-E-M-C-A-R-E-Y, um, and work-related policy and research emails can go to gemma.carey at unsw.edu.ie. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining me. If you don't mind hanging on for one sec, I'll uh, hit the stop on the recording and have a quick debrief. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 